All right, we are back. I do want to note that uh, KQED seemed to have noticed something that was missed by the Chronicle and the Bee in regards to this latest release by Richard Nixon. Well, Richard Nixon's, I guess it's not even his estate. Actually, I'm not sure who is releasing these tapes. The Nixon Library? At any rate, The Last Batch was, uh, was released this past week. And uh, our friend Don Rose in Los Angeles did send us an email forwarding the KQED piece that, uh, that cited some unusual statements by President Nixon to then-Governor Reagan about Sacramento. Evidently, after Nixon made a speech on, in April of 1973 about Watergate, he got a call from Ronald Reagan. And to quote from it, Nixon, how nice of you to call. <laughs> Reagan, well, Nixon, you thought it was the right speech, did you? Reagan, I did, very much so. Nixon, had to say it, had to say it. Then after talking about some resignations, Nixon, where are you now? Are you in Sacramento? No, I'm in Los Angeles. Good for you. Get out of that miserable city. There you have it. Richard Nixon, who once wanted to be governor of California, refers to our state capital as a miserable city. And you have to admit, when it's 109 in August, it is kind of a miserable city. We think that uh, Sacramento may be just a little bit less miserable due to the fact that KDVS has significantly upgraded our signal by getting a uh, little bit of a boost in the, the, the amperage, the wattage that we're putting out, and um, a tower that's just a bit higher. I myself found this to be a startling improvement while driving to work this weekend. Um, our signal from KDVS would generally get very weak and very sketchy in Citrus Heights between where I live in East Sacramento and out in Roseville where I, where I work, but Boy, it is, was now crystal clear the whole way out. This is wonderful. I want to congratulate everybody who was involved in, in this upgrade, uh, particularly Todd Yurick, who worked tirelessly uh, to do this for, for years. So Todd and, and, I, and all the rest of you, I, don't, I should probably cite everybody who was a part of this, but uh, let, let's start with Todd today. Todd, congratulations. Good work, and I think that we're going to have a much greater impact. Um, at least, certainly, we're going to be heard a lot better around the Sacramento metropolitan area, and even, I understand, down in Stockton as well. I used to listen when I was driving down I-5 to work in Stockton, and we'd, we'd uh, peter out about uh, 12-mile road, um, um, the way to Lodi, and, and now, apparently, the si- signal is crystal clear throughout the Stockton area. So, good news, and I, and I look forward to, uh, well, all of us reaching more people. And something else that should be reaching more people is one of our favorites, uh, Planetary Radio, which is now back on KDVS in our lineup. During the summer, sometimes it's hard to have all of these slots for public affairs filled, and I suggested to uh, our public affairs director, Chloe Lassard, that she might want to check out Planetary Radio, well-produced program. We've been happy to have Matt Kaplan on this show on many occasions, and uh, she liked what she heard, and now it's back on our lineup, where I'm, I'm glad to hear it. And uh, we can hope, too, that uh, with Planetary Radio back uh, on KDVS, that Matt Kaplan will do us the favor of trying to secure for us an interview with Emily Lakdawalla, who has a wonderful article in the current edition of Sky and Telescope magazine about the history of water on Mars. We've openly pondered the question of why it is NASA is so coy about the fact that there obviously has been lots of water on Mars and is still lots of water on Mars. I don't know. Maybe Emily can clear that up for us, and we'll 
see if we can't put a call on the mat and bring uh, bring her on the show. We've been wanting to have her on the show for, for some years now, and, uh, well, we'll see. This uh, same issue of Sky and Telescope, which is the September issue, had one bit of, uh, well, perhaps sad news. It turns out that scientists trying to confirm the fact that Alpha Centauri Turns out that scientists trying to confirm that Alpha Centauri B has a planet are running into some problems with the data. They've been looking at it some various different ways, and they, out of all the all the noise in the signal, they're not able to confirm the fact there appears to be a planet. And apparently, as the two stars, Alpha Centauri is a, a double star system, as they get closer to each other, this may um, sort of wreck the effort to get better data for the next few years. We'll have to wait till they they pull further apart in their mutual orbit. I'm a little bummed by this. I was hoping that uh, that the nearest nearest star to us, this nearest star system, the Alpha Centauri system, would have a planet, because that would certainly make it the closest planet, except those in our own solar system. So um, time will tell if it's real. Fingers are crossed. Of course, when I say that, it turns out it's it's not an Earth-like planet. It's apparently very close to uh, Alpha Centauri B and very hot, more like our own Mercury, maybe even hotter, but still. And speaking of Alpha Centauri, which is a segue I seldom get to use, there's a piece in New Scientist from the August 24th issue that really has me scratching my head. It, it's, it's a bit off from the usual quality of journalism you find in New Scientist magazine. It's titled, Take Me to Alpha Centauri One Day. And uh, is subtitled, An Interstellar Trip Won't Happen Anytime Soon, But the Technology It Is Inspiring Is Useful on Earth. Inspiring? According to this author, Anne-Marie Corley, writing from Dallas, some smart people, in particular Michael Minovich, who in the 1960s came up with the idea of gravity-assist trajectories, which uses the gravity of planets to speed up uh, planetary probes, is now revisiting another, another idea back from the 1960s, an interstellar ramjet, which they drew a picture of, a rather fanciful picture. The device would scoop up hydrogen gas from the interstellar medium, which is, uh, which is uh, pretty close to a vacuum, using strong magnetic fields, ionize it, and then squeeze the charged particles into a fusion reactor. Yes, except we have no clue how to make a fusion reactor. But if we did, this might be a good way to go to Alpha Centauri. Of course, there's all this talk about wormholes and that sort of thing. In fact, the piece actually addresses that. Well, there's also the wormhole method. In the box titled Prospects for Interstellar Travel, the, the bottom choice is warp drive, comma, wormholes. The pros to this are that it's very fast. The cons to this are there's no existing technology. It's actually worse than that. There's no existing, really, theory. Well, I guess there is a theory that you could do this sort of thing, maybe, if you had an infinite supply of energy. But... Um, Wow, this is some goofy stuff. Although, damn it, I wish they could solve these problems and find a way to generate, uh, you know, uh, a 1G or a fraction of a G, and then they describe a 0.7G thrust, which would get you uh, out to Alpha Centauri and back in 13 Earth years, which would be pretty cool. But mainly this is just a bit of fanciful writing. But uh, to go back to Emily Lakdawalla's article uh, before we close today... I was intrigued to note that they now think, 
that uh, where we landed with the Viking 2 spacecraft, which was fairly high up in latitude on the Martian surface, means that there was ice underneath the spacecraft. And it had a claw to dig, but apparently nobody thought to tell it to dig another 10 centimeters, 4 inches down, at which point we now think it probably would have struck ice. So the discovery of ice, which we now have, we now have seen directly, the thrusters of the Phoenix Polar Lander did expose areas of ice, and the orbiters have now shown meteor impacts that reveal ice at first, and then as the spacecraft passes over over the months, the ice apparently evaporates or gets covered over by sand or, or dust. Interesting stuff. There is water all over Mars, and we look forward to talking with Emily Lakdawalla about that. All right, we've got all of about one minute left on the show. So, what the hell? Let's pull a few items out of the Wits Thesaurus, shall we? I do want to note that, um, that there were two books in my hand in, in my library. One of them was called Reducing Clutter, which, uh, which I thought I should read. <laughs> but then I picked up this book that I'd ignored for so long, the ultimate reference book, The Wits Thesaurus, and haven't read the clutter book yet. But thank God for the clutter of a book like this one, which, well, to quote from it, in this case, from one of the anecdotes section. The playwright Charles MacArthur brought to Hollywood to write a screenplay was describing the difficulty of writing visual jokes to Charlie Chaplin. Said MacArthur, how, for example, could I make a fat lady walking down Fifth Avenue slip on a banana peel and still get a laugh? It's been done a million times. What's the best way to get the laugh? Do I first show the banana peel, then the fat lady approaching it, then she slips? Or do I show the fat lady first, then the banana peel, and then she slips? Neither, replied Chaplin. You show the fat lady approaching, then you show the banana peel. Then you show the fat lady and the banana peel together. Then she steps over the banana peel and disappears down a manhole. Yeah, that's why we love Charlie Chaplin. We also love Jack Parr. Remember when we when he passed away some years back, we did a... Uh, commemoration of that on the program and made mention of the fact that he was the kind of guy that would bring someone like Malcolm Muggeridge, the editor of Punch, onto the program. Noted the Wits Thesaurus on Jack Parr's Tonight Show, Malcolm Muggeridge allowed that despite his disdain for politics, he had voted only once in his life. I just had to, he explained. There was this one candidate who had been committed to an asylum and upon discharge was issued a certificate of sanity. Well, now, how could I resist? What other politician anywhere has an actual medical report that he is sane? And finally, this one. The wife of a mediocre writer approached the accomplished writer, Francois Copé, to vote for her husband, who was seeking a prestigious membership in the French Academy. She pleaded, he'll die if he's not elected. Copé assented, but his vote was insufficient. Another seat became available sometime later, so the wife reiterated her plea to Copay. He said, no, I consider myself free of any obligation. I kept my promise, but he did not keep his. And let's just end on one final quote from the immortal Errol Flynn, who once said, my main problem is reconciling my gross habits with my net income. And that about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Dr. Gary Aguilar. I'm sure he'll be back again uh, fairly soon. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time.